This podcast is part of the Paris Fintech Forum Communities Programme and is brought to you with the support of BPI France. You're listening to the Fintech Podcast, the show that goes deep into the stories, the successes and failures that went into creating some of the world's most fantastic fintechs. I'm Elliot Gotkin, and in this episode, forget the credit crunch, monetize and pollinate founder Al Lukies had to have his bones crunched before realizing fintech and not farming or professional sport was the career for him. I, I used to be a rugby player and decided that 37 broken bones was enough. My legs sort of did end up facing the wrong direction for a while. but And so I thought after rugby, I'd never find anything quite so challenging. But I'll, I'll be honest, building fintech companies isn't, isn't a dissimilar feeling, certainly psychologically. Al Lukies, founder and CEO of Pollinate and chair of the UK's Fintech Alliance. Uh, welcome to the Fintech podcast. Hi, Elliot. Good morning. Great to, uh, great to be in touch. Yeah, well, great to see you as well. I think you're you're in the UK, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, how are things there? Kind of semi-lockdown, kind of things lifting a little bit. Um, I, I think there's there's hope. Uh, we're still obviously uh, in in relatively tight restrictions, although the Prime Minister has laid out a, a roadmap um, for various stages of, of restrictions easing. But I I do think uh, Zoomtopia as it as it's starting to be known is starting to weigh heavy on people, particularly on such a beautiful spring morning as we, we have today because the sun is shining. It would be nice to be out and about. Okay. Well, that's uh, that's good at least, yes. Uh, and I mean, in terms of, uh, of, of Pollinate, this is the, the company that you are uh, running, which you, which you founded now. Why don't you tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah, thanks, <clears throat> Elliot. And it, it's, it's great to have the opportunity to, and, and thanks so much for for doing this and spreading the word, you know, fintech more generally is is a a community really globally now that's growing so fast and uh, there's so much best practice to be shared. So it's it's great to be on the channel. And um, yeah, Poll- Pollinate is is uh, as have been all the companies I've been involved in. Actually, it's a uh, what we call a B to B to C, or in this case B to B to M, which is the merchant. Um, but it's an enabling. Uh, piece of technology so fintech sort of breaks into two parts there's the very disruptive you know tend tend to be silicon valley led companies that say we don't need banks anymore let's just go build it ourselves and then there's obviously uh, other organizations around the world that see the banks as the distribution partner but they can help them change the engine in mid-flight and we're sort of one of those so pollinate was set up a, a number of years ago um in partnership with my, my good friend ross McEwen, who was then the chief executive of royal bank of scotland and Royal Bank of Scotland had been a major powerhouse in merchants acquiring um, in the early 2000s uh, with their ownership of WorldPay. And then after the global financial crisis, had to sell off many assets, one of which was WorldPay. And so they'd been out of the game for 10 years. And Ross, who has a very, very authentic uh, care for small businesses, as you will see in, in Australia, where he's now running National Australia Bank, he he wanted to get back into the space. and. Um, asked me if you know what would be the right way to do it and and I said to him well certainly we don't want to sort of just play catch up with what's already in the market you've got to sort of leapfrog because the competitors in this space now aren't other banks or aren't other merchant acquirers it's companies like Square and it's companies like Stripe and Izettle and very innovative companies that don't have the 
legacy or incumbency of running a big bank, they can just be digital native. So that was the origination of the idea. So you're effectively helping banks, legacy banks, traditional banks, whatever you want to call them, kind of uh, mm-hmm. leapfrog into the uh, digital era, which I, I guess has been a, a pretty good opportunity, good moment for you to do this. Obviously, we've seen a lot of uh, you know the terrible personal toll that the coronavirus pandemic has taken on people's lives and on economies around the world. But uh, clearly, this is a, a very good time to have been in your position to enable banks to digitize faster when that's pretty much been what they've been racing to do over these past uh, 12 months, perhaps even faster than they were already doing. Yeah, I mean, certainly you're absolutely spot on. Idea that, you know, we've seen uh, William Hague, the ex-British Prime Minister, wrote a great article in Telegraph very early in the pandemic. He said, look, this is going to be a 10-year acceleration in one year. You know, we're just going to see 10 years of innovation squashed into one because we don't have a choice. And we've seen that with technology in all fields. But of course, you know, banks, and look, I, I'm, you know, I don't know whether it's Stockholm syndrome or something, but but you know, I, I come back to working with banks and I it's not easy. Let's be crystal clear. You know, working with banks and their legacy systems is a great challenge and and um bank bashing is also a very easy political sport because you know people see the banks in many ways as as part of the problem as well as a solution. But you can't come away from the fact that you've just raised, which is in a crisis, the government looks to the banks to act as an aqueduct of capital, to restart the economy, to support small businesses, to su- support entrepreneurs, to get money to them, to, to help them survive. And so you're right. What we've seen now is many banks say, right, what are we going to do to help small businesses? And part of that is obviously capital. There's no question that small businesses need loans and capital. But also, what tools does a modern day small business need to survive and thrive? And, and you've got this perfect storm, Elliot, where it's not just the pandemic and it's not just you know the, the digital um, disruption that's going on. You've also got we, what we now call the tech fins, not the fintechs, the tech fins. These huge tech companies that have sort of gobbled up retail, gobbled up music, gobbled up every other industry and are now looking at this space and going, we can do that too. And of course, I'm thinking of the Amazonification of the world. And so for a small business... You know, your challenge is how do I get to the eyeballs? If people aren't out shopping, if people aren't walking past my store, how do I get to those people? And there's loads of marketplaces out there. There's Etsy, there's Amazon, there's not on the high street. They're everywhere. But the cost is very, very challenging for a small business. So sometimes you're taking up to 30% of total revenue to, to tap into that distribution channel. And so our message to banks, and thankfully many of them are agreeing, is look, you already have this data. You have the data on small businesses because they bank with you. You have the data on retail consumers because they bank with you. So why wouldn't you become the marketplace between the two? And so where we got excited about the opportunity was to say, in a GDPR world, can't we get consent from the consumer and consent from the merchant? And so I, as a customer of NatWest, for argument's sake, could be heading to Cornwall in my post-COVID lockdown summer holiday and look into my banking app and suddenly here's a whole load of cafes, restaurants, interesting shops and the bank's bringing that information to me and the merchant's not getting charged a fortune for new customers. But at the same time, and this is partly uh, from speaking with other um, founders of uh, let's say, alternative lenders, particularly aimed at uh, small and medium-sized businesses, and especially in the UK, uh, that it was very hard for a lot of small businesses to 
open accounts uh, with banks if they didn't have them already to get access to government support, for example. Um, so would perhaps you have missed out uh, and the banks have missed out on quite a lot of new business there, given that they were, I guess, overwhelmed and were being quite strict in terms of their lending criteria, which also at the same time provided, of course, an opportunity for many of these alternative lenders as well? Yeah, look, I think you're absolutely right. And, and as the as the chairman of the FinTech Alliance in the UK and also uh, the, the FinTech ambassador to the previous two prime ministers, I've been heavily involved in encouraging this, this expansion of competition. So I don't think that um, having alternatives to the incumbent banks is bad news at all. I think it's great. Um, yeah, up until 2008, we only ever had four clearing banks. We've issued 23 new banking licenses in the last 10 years. It's fantastic for competition. It's great for innovation. I don't think you can fault the banks, um, the, the, the major high street banks, that when they were told by government to issue enormous amounts of debt uh, and collateral to get get the you know the industry kind of surviving, that they weren't also uh, able in parallel to open up lots and lots of new relationships because KYC and AML and onboarding the new customers very difficult. That said, to, to your point. Yeah, we're interested in scale, and and NatWest, who's our partner in the UK, has over a million business customers and 16 million retail customers. So that's still pretty substantial market share. Um, on the alternative lenders, and we've seen the highs and lows of that, you know, recently in the press. Um, as long as they're government backed, I think it's fantastic. The challenge is when you get people right on the edge of fintech that that can be helpful to you you know can give you an umbrella on a sunny day but as soon as it starts raining have to take it back again and that's the thing we've always you know we call it right touch regulation you've got to make sure that the the merchant or the the business customer is protected and we were just talking about um, you know timing in terms of all this digitization going on and you being very uh, well positioned to help banks ride that wave of course it's also good timing for us having this conversation because uh, i believe you just raised recently uh, some 50 million dollars taking your total to about 100 million dollars so perhaps you can tell us how how is pollinate doing in terms of uh, in terms of customers in terms of traction in terms of growth can you quantify you know we grew three times faster last year than we did before or can you can you give us some uh, some numbers yeah, no, happily. Um, and and you're right. Last week we we closed our what we call Series C, so um, our and what we hope will be our final capital raise for for a decent period of time. I think the most exciting headline for for, for me personally, having been in the space for twenty odd years, is is uh, the the new investor. So insights uh, from North America, who you know for me are you know one of the smartest software investors. Uh, of all time, really, and very early in Twitter, very early in Spotify, uh, very early in Checkout.com, uh, over 400 companies in their portfolio, 40 billion of assets under management. So super smart um, investors. So great validation for us from that perspective. And then if we just step back and I just explain for two minutes what, what Pollinate is, you know, Pollinate is, is a really a one world alliance of banks. If you think of it like the airlines, we've got geographically non-competing banks. So a bank in Australia, a bank in the UK, a bank in Africa, a bank in Canada, a bank in Brazil, who don't see each other as a threat, but all have the ambition of being better with small business customers. And so what we get is we get shared learnings, we get shared experiences, you know, something that works really well in Australia, we could then replicate it in the UK. And so that's our strategy. And um, that's sort of reflected, Elliot, in our cap table. So We've already got NatWest, National Australian Bank, MasterCard, 
uh, an investment fund called Motive Partners as investors. And I just wanted to make sure that we had the right. I always believe there's a healthy friction in life. You know, everyone looks for this frictionless world, which is a bit utopian. Yeah, I think there's always a healthy friction around the around the cap table. And we've got some out and out financial investors. And then we've got some strategic investors. And the strategic investors invest because they want access to the platform and they want to learn and they want to innovate. Financial investors invest because they want to get a return on their investment. And so it completes the jigsaw really nicely for us. In terms of KPIs, we did grow a lot last year, but of course we had to pivot. So we onboarded about another five and a half, six thousand small business customers just in the UK alone last year. But of course, a lot of shops were closed. And so what we had to do was change our proposition to be able to help a pub that had never done a takeaway in its life, had never had a, a delivery sent to someone in their local village in their life. So we had to build some new tools and capabilities. Um, and then in Australia, our partnership with National Australia Bank, they're the largest um, business bank in Australia by some distance. They have 150,000 small business customers and obviously they're slightly ahead of us in in terms of the end of COVID. Um, and so they're much more kind of living a, a relatively normal life. So we're starting to see huge traction in Australia as well. So it's exciting times, yeah. Right. And and as you said, you know, you've been knocking around in uh, the world of fintech for, for, for a while now. This isn't your first rodeo about, a, I think, a, a decade before fintech became a word, let alone a thing uh, you founded Monetize. Uh, tell us a bit about that and uh, perhaps uh, any of the other, uh, you know, milestones along the way. Yeah, I mean, not, none of it. Uh, um, I, I'm, I hasten to, to respond um, through strategic genius or, or anything other than luck, really. But um, I, I used to be a rugby player and decided that 37 broken bones was enough. Um, and so thought I'd not find Not at the something. same time, I hope. Well, no, but there was one particular incident. As an Englishman playing on the hard soils of uh, uh, Australia, when I first got down there, I did the classic English thing of sort of rolling around on the floor a lot and realised that that hurt because people stood on you. So I developed a new technique, which was staying on my feet. But I rather stupidly put my leg over to the other side of a ruck where the ball was on the ground and uh, a very two very large Tongan chaps decided to run into my leg and snapped it in uh, three places in the middle with spiral fractures around all my toes and dislocated my um, uh, ankle, which was uh, painful enough. But then when the um, when the stretch was being uh, wheeled with me on it over to the ambulance, it had one of those. It wasn't like one of these wonderful modern electric ones. It had a very big, long metal uh, handle which was clipped down by a spring. And when they got to the ambulance, they took their hand off it, thinking it had locked in, but it hadn't. So it swung up and broke the final toe on my foot. So I think everyone else found it very funny, but it wasn't uh, wasn't necessarily funny for me at the time. But uh, yeah, my leg sort of did end up facing the wrong direction for a while. But um, that's that's what happens when you decide to play a silly game against big Pacific Islanders. Um, and so I thought, you know, after after rugby, I'd never find anything quite so challenging. But I'll, I'll be honest, building fintech companies isn't isn't a dissimilar feeling, certainly psychologically. Um, but I was very, very lucky in, in early 2000s um, to meet a, a guy at Vodafone who was doing some early thinking on mobile phone networks and what came next. You know, we could all do voice, we could all do text. And this was long before smartphones. And um, as part of getting 3G licenses issued in the UK, they were writing a CSR report on, you know, what else could you use your mobile phone for? And that was the early stages of mobile money. And obviously now everyone's heard about M-Pesa and 
um, you know, how mobile has, has acted as a leapfrog. I think in 2002, there were 2 billion people on the planet who had a bank account or access to financial services. That number is now 4.1. So an incredible transformation driven by mobile. And, um, and we, between the two of us, came up with this idea of, of early stage mobile banking. And uh, we created a, a business, as you say, it ended up being called Monetize, but it was a, an incredible journey, really, 15 years, um, half as a private, half as a public company. And um, some good days and bad days, like any business, um, peaked out at a, about a 2 billion market cap with about 2,000 people around the world um, working for the company, lots of great partnerships. But... The, the the parallel, which is so interesting, is mobile banking was still at that stage just seen as a sort of, well, why would I do it? Because I've already got internet banking. So no one really saw mobile as a different channel to, to the internet. And of course, what we now see is the mobile phones with you all the time. It's your contactless payment device. It does so much more. And we were trying to persuade banks that this is where the world was going. And, um, and then, of course, along came the smartphone and suddenly everyone got it. And... One of the, the volume drivers, one of the things that got all the banks using uh, the mobile service was balance inquiries. Everyone else got so excited about payments and things. But in the early days, it was just the fact that checking my balance was still a schlep. You still had to go to the ATM or you know, log on with all your credentials online. So instant balance inquiries were what started the journey. And if I think about Pollinate, you know, getting paid, being able to receive digital payments online or being able to accept a contactless payment is the same utility to a merchant but actually historically it's been really difficult you know if you if you look at onboarding for a new merchant acquiring service it can take five days to get your terminal you have to send over 11 bits of paperwork your dog's first name you know your mum's maiden name all of the stuff that you have to do and even then it can be quite a clunky experience and that's just not acceptable so you know what we're very passionate about here is a small business should be able to just focus. If they're a cheese maker, focus on cheese. If, if you're a wine distributor, focus on that. If you run a cafe, focus on that. What we want to bring to you through your banking relationship is all the tools and services that you need to run your business. And that could be a loyalty scheme. It could be an account, great accounting package from zero. It could be um, HR payroll software. But if we, can, if we can really get inside your head and help you run your business, then you're going to be more successful. Right. We actually had a, a fintech founder uh, on uh, uh, recently who uh, was also a cheesemaker in another life as well. So perhaps uh, that's a good example. Uh, to, uh, <laughs> well, I was, to, a, to I was a farmer. So, so um, my, brother, my brother runs a very successful pick-your-own-fruit farm and uh, has been a great uh, help to me in, in, um, you know, in sculpting the proposition, really, because you know, he, he has people come along. You know, sometimes they have cash. Sometimes they have a card. Um, yeah, there's other things they want to buy. He doesn't really know historically where his customers come from because you don't have time to ask everyone. So actually data enabling that experience, connecting into his Facebook feed, connecting into his Instagram feed, uh, people being able to give consent via GDPR so that you can actually see where they're coming from and market to the right community has been has been transformational. So in true fintech style, you know, old meets new, big meets small, fusion happens. And we get these fantastic new tools. 
Okay, but I have to say, Al, you've mentioned a couple of things there, which I really am going to have to uh, probe probe you on. Uh, you talked about playing rugby. You talked about uh, being a farmer as well. Uh, were, were you you were just playing for fun rugby? Was the farming like an actual career? When when you were kind of growing up, you wanted to be a farmer or a rugby player, an entrepreneur. What was the uh, what was the journey here that we're talking about? Well, yeah, I'm, I can't really answer it in the in the context of growing up, so I'm not sure that's happened yet. But um, I. Uh, yeah, my, my, my dad really, we, we were a farming family, seventh generation. Um, dad sort of had two great loves in his life. One was rugby and one was farming. And my brother was the older son and, and certainly in, enjoyed his farming um, when he was younger. And I was, a, I was a bit of a run to the family. I was allergic to, to most things, got hay fever and um, didn't enjoy the countryside sports and all the rest of it. So it was just quite an obvious split really and um and my brother um did an incredible job really of taking the farm from what it was which is a relatively local uh farm built it up to be in a very successful business today and um as i say i went off to play rugby and then someone much bigger than me decided that that part of my career was over um but this I, was I, professionally you were playing yeah i played for for saracens and uh, london irish and then was lucky enough to go and play in australia um down in uh, in canberra the act and, what position um, were you? I was a hooker. Ah, I, I was a flanker at, at, at one point in my life. That's why you still got your looks. You see, <laughs> it was it was us. It was us in the front row that got got a bit gnarled up. But um, no, and and again, you know, joking aside, you'll know as a as a someone that's played the sport. One of the great things about rugby, when you think about building businesses, is it it really is a very unique sport because you've got people of all shapes and sizes from all different backgrounds um, who are trying to come together and one of the great things about rugby is there's there is no hide in place so once you're on the field once the first whistle's gone you know everyone has a plan and then the first whistle goes and it and chaos ensues one of the great things about rugby is the camaraderie and this sense that if I do my job even though I might not get the credit certainly as a hooker uh, lost in the middle of the scrum but but tall good looking people like you get to score tries and you know guys kick the goals uh, and that doesn't matter because at the end of the day you all celebrate you know at the end together and and I've applied a lot of that in in building teams in the business world which is you know we may well have someone that's a, a deep tech expert we may have someone that's a great lawyer we may have someone that's an outstanding salesperson you know we may have someone that's um brilliant at proposition development but as long as they all understand where they fit and the fact that without each one of them, we, we we can never be successful. That's really important. And and I'm delighted to see the old, you know, I didn't have a choice because uh, I left school at 16 to go and play rugby and certainly didn't have a, a monoline career path through you know, graduation schemes or anything. So I didn't have a lot of choice, but it's, it's brilliant for me when I look at my team now. We've got people that worked in big banks. We've got people that ran the biggest loyalty scheme in the UK. We've got people that have been in huge technology organizations, but all the hierarchies are changing. And I love that, you know, we're getting far more empathetic leadership styles, you know, which I think a lot of it's, a lot of which has been driven by more women leaders. Um, you know, they have a natural ability to listen more than men, two ears and one mouth. We tend to have two mouths and one ear. Um, and, and I just think it's fantastic that, that actually, you can go and set up a business like this. You know, we're about, I suppose, 180 people, all different walks of life. We're working with banks on four different time zones, building teams within teams, building you know, cool stuff that ultimately the merchants and consumers are going to benefit from. And when I started in business in 2000, that stuff just 
didn't happen. You were a vendor and, you know, you came and you sat with a procurement department and then you were given your kind of, you know, your map of what you had to build in the next two years. And if you didn't, you know, you weren't getting paid. And it was all very hierarchical and very, um, yeah, what's the right word? I, I don't feel there was a lot of partnering going on. And because of the speed of change, which is what you were talking about a few minutes ago, you know, banks have suddenly realized that if we don't partner and we don't all sign up to a sort of pact here, we're never going to get the best out of really high quality people because they're just going to go and work in a disruptor and they're going to eat our lunch as well. So I, I like where we this connected consciousness that's going on now. I like the fact that we get big and small and old and new all working together. Okay, Al, well, don't go away because I just need to remind our listeners that this podcast is part of the Paris Fintech Forum Communities Programme for 2021. In this special pandemic period, you can enjoy throughout the year top-level live sessions with key industry players, exclusive on-demand interviews such as this one, and use our innovative digital networking capabilities to meet your peers, develop your network, create new business opportunities, and continue to build together the future of the fin and tech industry. And you can find out more at www www.parisfintechforum.com. Now, back to the story. Al, a rugby hooker, that's the little guy in the middle of the scrum, is recuperating in hospital from his incredibly painful-sounding career-ending injury. And I resumed by asking him how he went from pondering the future to embarking on his new career in fintech. Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. Uh, and, and there were many moments, obviously, it was about an 18-month rehab uh, process. So there was many moments when you, you lie there and think, what am I going to do next? Um, and there were some other you know things going on in, in our family at the time, um, particularly particularly related to the farm. And had things been going you know, better there, um, then you know, perhaps I would have ended up supporting my brother in that. But he was going through, a, the farm was going through a very difficult time. So no contingency plan. Um, I suppose, you know, and, and thank you very much for calling me little because um, one of the things about <laughs> being one of the things about being 16 stone is uh, you are little compared to the rest of the guys in the scrum, but you're still relatively um, well, at least as wide as I am tall. So, um, you know, square. Um, but one of, one of the things that um, you do learn in you know our great sport is that um, whether you win, lose, you know, uh, get hit with a cheap shot or not at the end of the game you'll go and have a beer together and uh, that's always been true of rugby and always will be and so um you know you learn a, an awful lot about sort of connections and building friendships on the circuit you're always going to bump into the same person over and over again and that was the one thing i'd taken away elliot and so i just got busy networking um and uh, and just just hearing you talk about what you're doing um you know which is fantastic yeah, the, the one bit of advice I'd give to Ed, you, you just can't lose, you can't fail by creating great connections. Of course, the key to creating great connections is is not always be telling them what you need out of the connection. It's learning what they need out of the connection. And we sort of have a, a bit of a golden rule in, in uh, Pollinate, all my companies, that if you're speaking to a customer five times, make sure four of them, you're giving them something. So you only have to ask once to get something back. Um, but I do think, you know, in the fintech world particularly, there are just so many different ways you can play your part. If I think of the supply chain that we're working in, you really have got everything from risk management, security, technology development, proposition management, product development, business development, hunters, farmers, PR, commercial. So, 
it's this amazing landscape where not only you get into working lots of different fascinating things, but in many cases, you're actually seeing the output of your work. And I think one of the challenges for a lot of people in, in business going to work each day is you don't feel like you're ever moving anything. You don't feel like you're ever getting a boulder up to the top of the hill. What's so great about fintech is you might be part of a neobank or you might be part of a, a fintech company like ours. And you can actually go to a local pub when we're allowed to and see the technology that you've been involved in rolling out, helping that small business. And I just think there's nothing more satisfying in the corporate world than actually seeing the impact. You know, if you look at some of the neobanks we've uh, seen built in the UK, all of which were ridiculed and everyone said, you'll never do it. How do you compete with the incumbent banks? Well, yeah, we're not doing bad. $12 billion companies in, in the UK created in the last six years, 73,000 new jobs, inward investment of $49 billion. Um, and, and that, as you said earlier, was a space that didn't, well, it didn't have a brand name. I mean, fintech's been around a long time. Visa and MasterCard are fintech companies, but it didn't have a brand name. And so it's a super time to be in fintech. Um, and it's a super time to be collaborated in fintech, whatever the political landscape, you know, fintech only works if we're all working together. So, um, you know, lots more of that, please, and lots more of these sorts of channels. And of course, you're not just uh, an entrepreneur uh, and investor anymore. I think in 2014, you were appointed pri uh, the UK Prime Minister's uh, fintech ambassador. You're now on uh, Prime Minister Boris Johnson's uh, business council. What's top of your inbox right now? What are your priorities? in that capacity oh well, look i think um just we're, we're obviously incredibly um excited as a nation about fintech you know, there's, there's no secrets there we just conducted the khalifa review ron khalifa the previous ceo of world pay uh, just conducted the the khalifa review which made some recommendations to government uh, which rishi sunak our chancellor has taken on board very earnestly and is, is already implementing some of them Fintech is, is at one minute past midnight. We're right at the beginning of the reinvention of financial services. So the UK has to double down and double down again and double down again. Um, it has to be part of our trading strategy. You know, the UK is um, an independent trading nation again. And if you think of where the world is going to these fusion industries, so the way I describe it is, it, it, you know, I still today meet people who, who think about technology as an industry. It's not an industry. It's all pervasive. Technology is amongst us we're integrating it you know to it every second of every day so if you think of technology as the horizontal and then you think of financial services as the vertical or medical as the vertical or energy as the vertical where they hit technology they fuse and you get fintech you get medtech you get energy tech and and those industries need more than just tech otherwise it would just be called tech and what i mean by that is you need right touch regulation so you need you know, a, a carrot and a stick. You need to protect consumers, but you also need innovation. You need, uh, you know, good legislation. You need good rule of law. Common business language is very helpful. Time zone is very helpful. So as part of the UK's trading strategy, you know, we are very well placed in these fourth industrial revolution, you know, um, fusion industries. And so, I have the honor of, of being involved in trade missions. Uh, obviously, they're digital at the moment, but uh, meeting other great nations and other great um, companies and, and, and individuals. We've um, set up over the last 10 years a number of fintech bridges uh, with 
the likes of Australia, China, um, Hong Kong, Singapore, South Korea, Canada, where there's an agreement between the governments that they're going to get regulators working together. We currently have over 50 regulators sharing intel around the sandbox, the, the Innovate uh, Project Innovate program in the UK. So that, and, and why that's so important for your listeners. When you're setting up a company, the first thing you do is build a business plan. And the business plan is based on the size of your domestic market. So if you're in North America, you say 330 million people can get access to this technology. If you're in a country like the UK, you say 67. If you're in a country like Australia, you say 25. But, but of course, in, in so, the UK, up until Brexit, you could have said, right, uh, our market is, what, 350 million or something. And I know that from speaking with other fintech founders, the one that springs to mind is the, uh, is, uh, the founder of Cantox, uh, for example, uh, who's based in London. He's not a Brit himself. Uh, I asked him, you know, as a fintech, would you have set up in London now after Brexit? And the answer was no, not least because it's really hard to get European talent now to come to the UK. So hasn't kind of fintech been shot in the foot, perhaps not by itself as a result of, of Brexit? Is it not now, um, you know, a, a little bit less certain that, that London will maintain its position, if you like, as certainly as Europe's a preeminent fintech hub? Well, I think that's the challenge and the opportunity. I mean, without wanting to to disagree with your one of your previous guests, all of the statistics just most recently last week, an independent review said that, that London is still the most sought after city to, to live and work on the planet, as it has been for the last five years. Um, you know, the infrastructure that's been built in the UK around financial services, which still represents 36% of all of Europe's financial services, you can't just drag and drop that. It's, you can't just copy and paste it. Um, and actually, you know, being part of, of uh, Europe, whilst I was a you know, big supporter of it at the time, um, doesn't make it necessarily easier to set up your business in uh, Germany or in France or in Spain. There's still all of the challenges with language and, um, you know, you're competing on a, on a level playing field. Yes, but, um, you know, I don't think that I can't think of many stories, certainly in fintech, where uh, people have come back and said, because of that, things became a whole lot easier for me to set up on 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 mainland Europe. I think where the opportunity really does come through now is that the UK can create these bridges with other nations and can negotiate those deals uh, on on its own terms. Um, and as I said before, one of the things about fintech is it's not just about the tech Um I mean, I was very interested in in the uh, comment you just made or, or someone else made about the talent. Actually, you know, talent coming to the UK is very important, and we've just accelerated our fintech visa program. But of course, you know, one of the things, and we certainly use this uh, with Pollinate, we work with a fantastic uh, partner called Endava, where we can use technology resources from across the world, technology resources from Eastern Europe technology resources from what we call nearshoring, um, and 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 actually, as we've seen in COVID, you don't have to physically be somewhere to build great businesses. So I, I think it's just an abundant time um, to be in fintech, and and uh, as I said, the Khalifa review is encouraging our government to double down. And I mean, fintech generally is is on fire right now, whether it's uh, fintechs going public via SPACs in the US or just raising huge amounts of money. Uh, yourselves, uh, Pollinate raised, has recently raised $50 million. Do you think valuations are kind of getting ahead of themselves, that it's all great to be excited and fintechs are kind of, you know, uh, eating the world and they're doing great stuff and new innovations, but at the same time that maybe uh, investors are getting a little bit ahead of themselves and that uh, valuations have, have gone a bit too far? 
Well, I think there's a lot of capital around, isn't there? Um, and look, I've seen this through a number of cycles. My previous company, we went public about four weeks before the global financial crisis kicked off um, as a as a early stage revenue pre profit business. Um, this is this is monetized. And, yeah, yeah. So we were how did you uh, how did you feel when that had gone public and then suddenly the financial crisis hit? Well, it was it was it was very difficult, but it wasn't the only time we at the end of the monetized journey, which was you know a great challenge to, to all of us involved. We we went from you know uh, well over a billion market cap, uh, and we lost about half a billion of our market cap when one of our big investors pulled out, um, which caused a lot of shareholder angst, and then ended up selling the business to a big American company. I've been through you know a number of these cycles. Yeah, my advice is always to the entrepreneur, which is. Yeah, if you can raise capital, that's fantastic, and and you know particularly if that capital can be put to good use. But but raising capital alone doesn't mean that you have a sustainable business. You know, raising capital in an in an upward cycle um, don't have to doesn't have to be biblical quotes. But Joseph in his Technicolor Dreamcoat, you know, there were seven years of fad and seven years of famine. I think if you can raise capital now, great, but make sure that capital is being put. To good work, which is of course converting capital into annuity revenue streams or to, you know, uh, bottom line growth. Um, I don't think it's particularly frothy. I mean, SPAC's got a very bad name um, first time round because of the types of organisations that were using them, and I think so did some of the tech markets. I mean, AIM got a lot of criticism for becoming a sort of graveyard of oil and gas, um, you know, shells that were hoping to to, to strike lucky. I don't um I don't think that it's it's crazy crazy at the moment and I do think some of the spacs if you look at the credibility of those involved are just a quick way of getting public um and you know getting public one of the other recommendations we made in the Khalifa review it's got to be easier for companies to get public because there is a huge number of private companies at the moment that public investors could could benefit from um I suppose the one other thing I would say that differentiates this from from kind of Web 1.0 and the dot-com bubble bursting is there weren't any proven business cases out there then. I mean, it really was, you know, put www dot in front of your name and, and, and you know, 10 times valuation. Um, you know, there's enough prior art out there. There's enough business models that we're seeing. Don't, don't forget the banking industry alone is a $4 trillion industry. So, so you're not necessarily creating net new revenue. What you're doing is you're starting to see revenue break out from the incumbency and form new, yeah, quite valuable businesses. That said, to your fair question, I do think there are still quite a few companies out there raising money in the hope that they get acquired rather than in the belief they can build a sustainable business. Any IPO plans for, uh, for Pollinate right now? Or too early. We're, we're, well, yeah, I mean, that's the other thing. You know, it's, it's flattering. We've had some fantastic feedback from the capital raise, particularly because of the quality of investors. But in real terms, Pollinate's only 18 months old. Um, we spent the first few years sort of incubated within NatWest building their new merchant acquiring platform, which is called Tilt by NatWest. But as an independent company, yeah, we've only been going 18 months. So you know, to be raising the levels of capital we're raising is 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 fantastic. But we've got a long, 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 long way to go. Um, and we're very, very excited about it. So um, we've just got to keep on, um, you know, keep on enabling our banking partners. But enabling also means challenging um, and, and challenging them in the sense of every merchant relationship you lose 
probably means that that merchant's going to stop using other banking services from you quite quickly. And we've seen across a number of banks that for every $1 you make from merchant acquiring, you make about another four or five from other banking services. So if you lose that merchant acquiring relationship, then you've got a real challenge in, in sustaining your own business model. Right. Well, it's good to see uh, things going so well after such a relatively short space of time. Just a couple more questions, Al. We, we talked about some of the, um, let's say, the, 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 the downs uh, in your life in terms of uh, the injury uh, that uh, cut short your professional rugby career. Um, are there any in terms of on, on the business side of things when you started going into that? I mean, it seems all, you know, monetized, you know, did well, you know, had a you know listed on the stock exchange and then got sold and then now um with pollinate um and i think you're also involved with an investment uh, firm as well everything seems to you know be well i mean were there any kind of failures on the business side of things uh, along the way that uh, that you can share and, and and perhaps what lessons you learned from those oh yeah i think far more failures than successes far more um and what was the worst? uh yeah. Well, I, th- I think um, yeah, when we were uh, going great guns at, at monetize on a on a huge growth cycle, um, our biggest shareholder at the time decided, well, an individual in our biggest shareholder at the time decided that that it was no longer their strategy, and and rather than warn us about it, decided to announce it, which shocked us and our shareholders quite drastically. Um, and so, you know, that was a, was one of the most traumatic experiences of my life, definitely. Um, and, uh, yeah, understandably, although many shareholders had made an awful lot of money on the journey from, from, uh, monetized being two of us to 2000 of us, you know, there were still a lot of people that invested later on in the journey and, um, you know, lost money. And, and I found that very hard to come to terms with because that, that had never been obviously any of our intentions. Um, but it also teaches you a lesson, you know, you can control the things you can control, but, uh, you know, if you're very reliant on one massive shareholder and they decide it's no longer, or strategic partner, they decide it's no longer their strategy, you better, better have a contingency plan. So, you know, that was a, um, you know, a really tough experience, um, going from poacher to gamekeeper, you know, learning about raising money rather than just, um, building companies so being part of uh, the motive partners journey uh, which is a fintech only fund which uh, is doing incredibly well was another experience because it it gave me insight into you know where these aqueducts of capital come from all the way up to sovereign wealth funds and pension funds all the way through private equity into into companies um and you know although that was a success you know there were many experiences on that journey where we thought that we you know, had a great story but these are highly sophisticated investors who just said look guys go and prove it five times before you come back and you know ask ask for our money and that's the chicken and egg of life isn't it um you know entrepreneurs are always told when you've got three successful ones under your belt we'd be happy to give you money that's that's not so great when you're starting your first one so um you know lo- loads of those very very tough experiences we did 12 joint ventures um, in in our time at Monetize, six of those worked, six of them didn't, and and you know uh, shutting down joint ventures, particularly in parts of the world where you're enabling people to find good employment, is extremely disheartening. You know, very very difficult to come to terms with. And then of course, you know, <laughs> my experience in in the public sector, um, you know, supporting previous prime ministers and be part of yeah we haven't had the easiest of times have we um 
and uh, you know it's not it's not been an easy four or five years um, for anyone, particularly in the pandemic. But I think you know the UK's had more than its fair share of dusting uh, dusting up. So um, yeah, def- definitely not. I mean, it's nice of you, nice of you to say it, but I, I don't measure success by um, necessarily building successful companies. You know, success is a is a feeling, and it's a quiet look amongst those of you that have been on the journey together um and that's much more important really than the, than the headlines right and i'll just just finally one question which i put to all guests on the fintech podcast uh which is what's the weirdest or craziest thing you've built or done in your life and the companies that we've already discussed can't be your answer Wow, um, it's a public show, so I'll be careful about what I say. Particularly as you've played the same sport as me, you'll be very aware of some of the rugby tours that I've been on. Um, but uh, yeah, cer- certainly in um, in sports terms, I was also I am a very keen skier and um, was one of the first people that I knew to jump out of a helicopter on skis um, uh, onto a onto a grung. Grand Couloir up in uh, in France, and then suddenly work out that the only way down was uh, in front of me, and uh, that was that was interesting for the interesting for the mindset. Um, and then I suppose, um, <laughs> yeah, growing growing up on the farm, we did used to try and um, experiment with interesting crops and things. But I'll I'll, I'll still never forget um, being asked to go out and pick asparagus for my grandfather in the in the morning and um you used to have these sort of curved knives that you used to have to get in under the soil and cut out asparagus and asparagus is one of the first crops to come through so it was always cold and um remember feeling very proud of of um this feeling of cutting through a good bit of asparagus and, and picking up out the soil just to realize it wasn't a bit of asparagus at all it was my finger but that's a that's a, wow. <laughs> a whole other story for another day well on that um on that digit rather than digital note, I guess we will um, <laughs> well, we'll end things there. But uh, Al, look, he's founder and CEO of uh, Pollinate and chair of the UK's FinTech Alliance. Really appreciate your taking the time to join us on the FinTech podcast to tell us all about your various injuries and uh, bits of you that you've uh, hurt over the years, but also most importantly, <laughs> your FinTechs and, and your journey to, uh, to founding them and, and running them. So thank you very much and, and best of luck. Such a pleasure. Great to see you. You know, although it makes me wince to even think about two giant Tongans mangling Alduki's leg, I'm sure he wouldn't change a thing. Sure, he may have gone on to make his mark in professional rugby or maybe even help the family farm onto even bigger things. But it's clear that his passion today lies firmly with fintech, growing pollinate and helping small businesses by enabling big banks to help them. As Al says, though, whatever you do, always have a plan B. So thank you, Al Lukies, and thank you for listening to the FinTech podcast with me, Elliot Gotkin, now part of the Paris FinTech Forum Communities Programme. If you like what you heard, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts, and you can get updates and listen to all previous episodes via the website, www.parisfintechforum.com. If you have any comments, suggestions, or feedback, you can find us on LinkedIn and on Twitter, at Paris fin Forum or at Elliot Gotkin. That's it from me. Thanks again to BPI France for sponsoring this podcast. We'll be back again next week for more of the best F in tech. Hope you'll join us again then. Bye-bye.